Father God, we thank you so much for blessing us. We thank you, Lord, for for giving us the the opportunity to learn from your word this whole week. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us with your spirit throughout this week. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would give us the words to to be able to speak and to to learn how to speak to those around us who who are different from us, who have a different worldview, who have a different perspective. And Father, I just pray that you would bless all those who have come today that your word may, may touch lives and, and help us to be more effective communicators and ambassadors for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who came thinking that you were going to learn about every single thing about a different religion and how to actually argue against them, I'm here to kind of burst that bubble. Sorry. Um, but what we are going to do, we're going to break this up into three different segments. First one, I've kind of just done a couple of summary slides on a lot of the key religions that you're going to come in contact with. Do, if you want to do some research, there's lots of great apologetics books out there. There's books like this, Kingdom of Cults, um, excellent, excellent resource material that can, will break down uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, New Age Cults, Unification Church, uh, the Baha'i Faith, Hinduism. So... There's tons of great resources out there. There's oodles and oodles of of good apologetics material. But that's not really going to be the driving force of today. The driving force of today is going to be able to learn how to communicate with them. So part one, we're just going to really blow through quickly the the fundamentals of each of the the religions. So you can actually at least learn a little bit of something and and learn what they actually believe. the second part is going to be discussion about um, witnesses and effective, the effective way in which we evangelize one with another. And then lastly is going to be actual techniques on how to communicate with those of other faith. So that's where we are at. That kind of gives us, a, uh, gives us an idea, an overview of where we're going to be discussing today. Before we do that, I'd like to start with this, this idea of the scripture and, and who we are as, as Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, ye be reconciled to God. The idea of our ambassadorship and our ability, I, I really appreciated Brother Mark Egich's message, where he, he kind of started out, and, and this idea of the, the reconciliation. Our job as ambassadors for Christ is to represent him on this, on this earth. Our job is to be able to to take that and, and move it forward and, and to further the purpose of Christ. And we do that by our conversation. We do that by who we are and living our lives in the world around us. So what they actually believe is, is an important factor. Studying books like this and reading books like this are good. However, I want to encourage you, just like each one of us, 
has our own areas of, of importance to us within our own faith and the things that we hold dearest to us, it's no different for other faiths. And so what may be an important factor for a Hindu that you're speaking to on day one may be completely different for a Hindu on day three that you're speaking with. And so the important thing is actually having conversation with them directly to find out what's important to them first, rather than just being able to regurgitate facts and figures. It's, more, it's less about winning the argument and more about winning them. So, what do we know about Islam? Five pillars of Islam that we can, that we can see. We have the testimony of faith, or the shahada. Um, we have prayer, the salat. That's the five prayers a day that they have to face east. Uh, we have the almsgiving of the zakat. We have fasting. And we have the pilgrimage, which is the hajj, the going to Mecca. A, a true Muslim, if they do all five of these, will have fulfilled their, their, their duty. Um, interesting little tidbit on the, on the salat, on the prayer for them. If they miss... Because every Friday afternoon, and I can tell you very clearly because they park up and down our street every Friday afternoon, we live a block from the mosque. And so we regularly have to deal with uh, Muslims within our community. And, uh, and so the, they, you can, during Ramadan, you could hear the call to prayer. Um, there were some you know, very interesting elements. If you, if you miss four Fridays in a row as a Muslim at, at, at the temple for prayer or at the mosque for prayer, then you actually um, are condemned to hell unless you can, you can work your way out of it. Um, so there's some, just some really interesting aspects of, of how important prayer is to them and how, how ingrained it is into them. These are the same prayers, wrote prayers over and over and over again. These are not different prayers. They say the same prayers five times a day. There's nothing, there's nothing um, different about it each and every time. The deity of Islam. Um, Allah is, is God Almighty. They are very much a monotheistic. They will call us, as believers, they will call us polytheists. Because they think we believe in God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we believe in three gods. They, they don't ever grasp the concept of the Trinity. Um, and they believe that Allah alone is the creator. They're very big, very much, very big um, anti, anti-evolutionists. They're very much pro-life. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things that go along with that. Um, but but the, the one thing that you, I think a lot of people don't grasp is you will never hear a, a devout Muslim attack Jesus Christ for his integrity for his life, they believe that he was the son of God, but they don't believe he's, he is God. They don't believe in his deity, but they believe very much in Jesus. They hold, and they will never speak a bad word against the 12 disciples either. Now, if you're ever going to engage in a discussion, be prepared for them to regularly discuss the aspect of Apostle Paul, because they, they think Apostle Paul perverted Christianity. They agree with Christianity until Apostle Paul, and then they have a problem with it. So, if you're going to use the scripture to be able to discuss with them, 
start with not using Apostle Paul. Just a little tip. Learn that one the hard way. Um, so, so really work on, on the idea of the 12 disciples in Christ. Um, now, they will also not believe in Jesus Christ actually died on the cross and raised again. Every, every um, Muslim scholar out there will, will go towards the swoon theory. Everybody know what I mean by the swoon theory? No. That Jesus didn't really fully die on the cross, it just looked like he died, and they nursed him back to health, and then he eventually died somewhere in India, basically, in a nutshell. So that's the swoon theory. They will hold dogmatically to that. So if you ever want to have that discussion, be prepared to have a good argument behind why it's not factual. Um, and there's some really good books. Um, Gary Habermas puts out some fantastic books on the resurrection and, and death, uh, death and, and sacrificial death of Christ. So there's some really good apologetics books on that that will help you do that. A lot of people in, in society don't realize how divided Islam is. Just like, oops, just like Christianity, we've got some four, well, four divisions, but one is pretty well extinct. Uh, so you've got three main divisions of, and I know the writing's really small here, so I'm sorry, sorry about that. Um, three main divisions of Islam. So think of it like Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, within ours. And then you break down from there based on what, what practices and traditions we have as Christians. It's the same way with, with Islam. So um, within Islam, you've got the three main uh, Amadi, Sunni, and Shia. These three are at constant war with each other. This is, this is like Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants. In fact, my next-door neighbor, who's Sunni, to, my, to the right of our, our house is Sunni, across the street are Shia, and they will never talk. They never even wave. They, there's nothing. There's no communication whatsoever with them. The they both told me the exact same thing, but from a different perspective, coming from opposite ends. Sunnis are the ones that are running ISIS. And their main objective in life is to kill the Shias. It's not to kill Christians and infidels and Jews. It's actually to kill other Muslims. I never really understood that until I started talking with them. And when you realize that, because I, I, you always hear about all these bombings and these, these terrorist attacks happening over in the Middle East, I'm like, you're just killing yourselves. Well, I don't get it. But when you understand that they're not actually killing themselves, they're killing, killing a, a different sect within it, you kind of grasp. And there's such a varying degree within this. Um, the main reasoning for the divide is when Muhammad died, that he did not name a successor. So each of these tribes gathered to a different successor. One was one of his understudies, one was his brother-in-law, and one was his cousin. And, and so they all kind of had gone through this, this aspect of, okay, here we, here's, here's who we hold to, here's who, who we hold to. And how many people have heard of Sharia law, right? That there's, a bit, there's always talk in, in the news about you know, Sharia law and all this, you know, we don't want it, we don't want it. Um, Sharia law is not 
a law like we would have based on like a constitution or based on, on some, some fundamentals like that. Sharia law is based on whatever writings of the imams, they call them hadiths, whatever they happen to hold to. So I'll give you a very simple example. If you are Amadi, who they're predominantly Muslims from Pakistan and from um, India, if you are in that vein of, of thought and in that school of Islam, then what you're going to find is you're going to see that they, are, they don't hold to any of the jihad teachings. They, will, they, they have no element of it. And because of that, the Sunnis don't consider them Muslim. And there's just such a major divide between them. And even within that sect, if you are Ahmadi, depending on which of the 14 different um, sections of, of the Sharia law, um, law courts, a woman can actually go and get a divorce. But you hear all the time, women can't get divorces in, in Islam. Well, again, you ha- we have to start defining things and start getting more specific. So just kind of, I, I know this is really fast and overwhelming, but I, it's just better to get it through this way. After this, we'll be a little more interactive. Uh, basics, ten- tenets of Hinduism. Um, dharma, so ethics and duties, um, the idea of, a, of rebirth. Um, we've all heard of karma. Many times we will, we will utilize that word, and it's actually in this exact same idea. It's going to come back to get us, right? It's right actions. Um, and then the last one is, is the idea of the reincarnation, right? So that's a big one within Hinduism. Um, Hinduism has literally millions of gods. But the whole idea is, um, is to be able to, to look at it and, and the, the principles or the characteristics, godlike characteristics, if we were to group them into one big group, they call it Brahman. The fascinating thing about this is, is Hindus can easily um, have self-contradicting statements that they utilize. Their big thing is... is, is the ability to um, keep everything in a balance and to deny oneself of, of earthly things. So the problem is, let's take the example of suffering on this earth. You go to India, where it's predominantly Hindu, and you go to some of these very, very poor towns within it, and you see these, you know, I mean, how many people saw one uh, movie? Slumlord, right? So when you look at that, movie, you saw you know, the, the tin shacks and the, and the, the devastating life that, that some of these people live in. And it's nothing but pain and suffering. And, and the, the Hindu explanation to that is, well, you know, there's always a balance with suffering, then there's also going to be joy, and there's also all these other things. And, and so you can defeat some of their arguments, some of their discussions, by, by pointing to this concept of, of Brahman and being able, being able to say, you know, because of, of this, this perfect setting, you know, how, can, how can pain be equally dispersed? If, if that was the case, then we'd have an equal, equal balance of, of those that suffer in the world and those that don't. And we obviously see a dichotomy between that. So therefore, the idea of a perfect balance or, or Brahman would not be able to, to be met within it. And so Hinduism... It, it, it is, it's, the, it's the Eastern religion version of moral relativist. 
Hindu scriptures, there's a, a, just a ridiculous amount of them as, they go, as you go through. And each one just kind of takes their own bent. And it doesn't matter because we don't care. There's, we don't care whether there's contradictions because this is just our version of Brahman. This is our element of it. And this is our, our aspect of, of who we are within Hindus. Um, and so there, there's, no real, there's no real fundamentals within it. All right. Uh, Buddhism. So you have um, some very fascinating aspects of, of what Buddhism is. And I can't really wrap my head around how you can even justify some of the things. Um, so let's go through the eight that they have. The right way, uh, or right view, or right understanding. To be able to understand nature. Um, right intention, or the um, unselfish desire to realize enlightenment. So we all hear about, you know, you know, the Buddha and, you know, he's always about enlightenment and always about, you know, just peace and joy and all of these things. And, and the, the killer of, of Buddhism and, the, and the, the, the key idea behind it is in order to at- attain enlightenment, you have to deny yourself of desire. So you think about that to its, to its natural extreme and you go, okay, if I have no desire, good or bad, then, okay, wait a minute, then I'm living an existence where I feel nothing. Is that a whole lot of fun? Not at all. Can't be, because if it was fun, then it's one extreme. And we would desire to have fun, we can't desire to have fun. So we have to keep it calm. And then, <coughs> excuse me, then we look at um, at the idea of how, he, how the Buddha came up with that idea. What we're going to do is we're going to look at when he got that enlightenment. That enlightenment happened the night that his wife went into labor with their son. So in order to eliminate suffering in his life, he left his wife literally in the throes of labor and moved himself up to the mountaintop. So in order to eliminate suffering in oneself, we're going to create it in somebody else. It seems a little off. But that's kind of, you, when you understand it, you can you study a little bit behind it, you realize that the, the principles by which they're, they're standing on fall on themselves. Um, right speech right action, it's always about peace and, and right livelihood, making sure you're living in a non-harmful means, in an ethical way. Um, right mindfulness, thinking whole body, mind, and, and, and that whole awareness of oneself through meditation and everything else like that. Um, right concentration, meditation of some other ded, you know, dedicated or concentrated practice. Um, some of the deities of, of Buddhism, they don't really have a deity. They don't have one. They're non non as they like to call themselves. Hang on. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to get a cough candy. I apologize. Um, Buddhists believe that there are all kinds of godlike creatures, um, and that you know, typically these are things from the earth, um, different types of types of deities that way. <coughs> I apologize. And so we have. We have this, these godlike creatures, we have these god principles, but we don't actually have a god itself. 
<clears throat> here's the different veins of thought, and depending on where in Asia you have, um, the, the most extreme versions that we would have of this would be the Tibetans. Um, and we hear about you know, all the Tibetan monks and you know, lighting themselves on fire and trying to, trying to bring you know, some of these, these crazy, crazy principles um, into to such an extreme physical practice of, of bringing bo- one's body into, into subjection and, and eliminating desire of everything. All right. This is the one I alluded to in the, in the intro. Jehovah's Witness. How many people have had interactions with Jehovah's Witness? How many people like interacting with Jehovah's Witness? How many people try to do anything they can not to interact with Jehovah's Witness? Yeah. You see them at the door, you're like, run, hold, you know, slide the curtains closed. We don't want to talk to them. Right? Um, they're a very, very unique um, group. But I have to say their dedication to, to what they teach and their dedication to teaching it is, is commendable. As a Jehovah's Witness, you have to attend five meetings a week. We complain about coming to church on Sunday sometimes. Five times a week you have to be there. You have to meet a quota for how many doors you knock on every month. It's very... Very regimented, very very structured. Um, so so keep in mind, Jehovah's Witness. They're not doing it just because they think that they they want to be able to attain you. They they do want to be able to attain you because they're a cult. But they also want to be able to to go forward with it. But more further than that, in that they have to do it. This is a this is a mandatory component. Otherwise, they they don't attain their their salvation. <coughs> Key principles. Um, Michael, the archangel, is actually Jesus. He was a created being by God, the Father. (coughs) So, what happens is, he becomes Jesus when he becomes a man. And he lives... (coughs) Wow. My voice is not functioning today. He lives as a man, perfect. He goes through and abides by the original design. And as long as you, as long as you as an individual, live and follow <coughs> the Watchtower Society. I got a cough candy, thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that, brother. Um, we as individuals... If you, if you were to follow it and follow the Watchtower Society, you would attain that same level and you'd be able to attain this, this component. Um, God is a single being, a deity. He is not a trinity. Um, and we see this in their version of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God with a small g. So, that simple twist on translation, and suddenly the whole picture comes into being with what they are um, and, and what they believe. They also don't, do not believe that God is all-knowing or present everywhere. That Jesus is not God, but is a created being. He's Michael the Archangel. So here's an idea of what they hold to. And these are the scripture references 
that they actually use in their version to be able to justify it. <coughs> so you can see you have Yahweh or, or, or Jehovah, Jesus or Michael, the angels which are lower than Jesus, and then humans, um, and then lastly false gods and idols. All right, the other one that likes to bang on doors is the Mormons. Now, these are a fun group. I, I had to really condense this because there's just so much there. They're, they're a very fun group. Um, the, the, so they hold to the Book of Mormon, but they also have um, Doctrines and Covenants, which is another one of theirs, um, and they have the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, so... When you look at those, that's their, the, kind of their main scriptures that they hold to. Um, before I go to the second half, does anybody know how the Book of Mormon came about? Yep. From an angel, yep. Golden plates from an angel. And then what happened? He had, he, he, he had supernatural powers to be able to do it. And, and here's how he did it. He had a, um, a bag, like a big uh, black bag, filled with all of the letters of the English language, all the alphabet, and, and he would have it over top of his head, like this, and he would pull out the letters and hand them to the person who was scribing for him. And supposedly the, the golden... Um, the golden plates were in Egyptian, old Egyptian hieroglyphs or something like that. Now, conveniently, nobody ever saw the plates. <coughs> Just like he didn't see the angel either, but that's a whole other ballgame. Um, so his version of God is that he's a supreme being of the universe, that he gradually became a god through righteous living. Um, he is a man of flesh and blood, but he... He has attained this almighty Godship because of his ability to live a good life. Um, Jesus and Satan are brothers, and they basically, uh, God presented the salvation plan, and uh, Satan proposed an alternative plan, and Jesus said, okay, I'm going to take God's plan and I'm going to go implement it because it's better, in essence. Um, from there, he came down and, and lived on this earth and lived a perfect life. Humans can follow that exact same path, attain that same level, and after attaining that same level, you can actually get your own planet. It's really cool. You get your own planet, and you can attain Godship just like God the Father, and you can create spirit babies that will always come down and perpetuate. I still don't know how people fall for this. All right. A little history on Joseph Smith. 1823, he had the visit from Angel Moroni. That's ironic. Uh, 1827, he received golden plates, uh, supposedly in Egyptian, translated them using supernatural ability or a scrabble bag. Um, then, in 1843, sorry, it shouldn't be so, anyways. Uh, in 1843, he arrested 
Uh, he was arrested, him and his brother were both arrested for destroying a printing press that was pr printing harmful material about Mormonism. In, 80, in 1844, uh, an angry mob broke into the jail and, and shot and killed both Joseph Smith and his brother, uh, which is why you will hear in, in Mormon hymns, you'll hear about avenging the blood of the, of the, <coughs> the priest Joseph Smith. So, once everybody dies, they get judged by Jesus, and then Jesus sends them to Joseph Smith for final stamp of approval where they go. Um, and, while we're on that, this is the four areas that you can go to. Four different worlds or realms. If you're Mormon, then you can attain the celestial kingdom as long as you walk a straight and narrow path and you don't apostatize. If you fall away, you automatically go right into outer darkness. Done. No chances. If you live a good life, and a majority of people do, the broad way, you can go to the terrestrial kingdom, which is life on this earth. And you just keep on self-perpetuating as a spirit being. If you are not a nice person, then you go down to the terrestrial kingdom, which, if you eventually learn your... This is a Mormon version of purgatory. If you learn your, your bad ways, um, and you learn that that's not going to help, then you can, you can earn your way back up into the terrestrial kingdom. But unless you become a Mormon, then you can go to the celestial kingdom. Sense? Nope. Yeah, I know. That's what I thought, too. <clears throat> All right. So how do we actually reach out as ambassadors? I mean, some of these beliefs are whacked. They really are. There's no other way to put it. They're, they're really crazy. But how do we as individuals reach out to them? How do we start that conversation? What is, what is the form of evangelism that we see in the scripture? How, did, how, it's, how was evangelism done in the New Testament? Meeting people where they are. Yep. Oh, Mars Hill. Yep. Yep. Okay, very good. Yeah. It didn't mean he went warring, though. No. Probably not, though. It didn't mean that he went warring, though. No. Like the barbarians. But, um, so so he, he started to reach out there. What, what other ways do we see in the, in the New Testament? Yeah. Fill their needs. He's looking at, at, their, at their life as a whole. Not just as as them as a as a unique component. He he. Oh, one more here. Okay, excellent. Um, living in love. Excellent. I think um, the most effective element, and this is the point I want to I want to drive home, and we're gonna we're gonna look at what this looks like here. 
Um, personal evangelism, one-on-one life-changing discussions happen when you actually know the person and you're in their life in more than just you know, standing on a street corner preaching. And so if you want to make a difference in somebody's life, <coughs> it's going to be one-on-one. John chapter 4, um, there's some great, great lessons. of And John, John chapter 4 is the woman at the well. Prior to the woman at the well, he, he has, you know, he proceeds to, actually this is subsequent to the, to the discussion with the woman at the well. He, Christ himself says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white already with harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages, and he that gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye entered into their labors. I think the key component that I want to drive home here is Christ calls us to be fishers of men, but he doesn't expect you to do the entire work. There are some that are designed to simply sow the seed, and there are some that will do the, the reaping. How many people have had experiences in their lives where you were able to walk into a situation where God had primed this person for you to talk to them through conversations with 10 other people and all of a sudden you happen to be at the right place at the right time to have the right words to have that conversation. That's, that's the idea. We, some people are reapers. They're the ones that are able to sell, close the deal. Some people are the people who just simply feed the, 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 the seeds in. And so keep in mind, you may, you may feel like you've never accomplished anything when it comes to evangelizing to people and witnessing to them, but sometimes your job is simply to sow the seed and you may never see what happens. We're going to look at a fishing analogy. How many people like to fish? I don't, so I, I just tried to use the best analogies I could here. Um, go... Go where the fish are. You reach people by going to where they are. You have to have social contact. That was, you know, Danny's example there. He reached out to those in their own setting. He didn't say, come to the synagogue and I'll tell you about the, the unknown God. He, he went to them. Um, so many times we get stuck on the idea of we have to be separated from the world. Don't confuse separation with isolation. How many people do the Amish reach with, with their lives? Very few. Because they they've, they've taken the idea of isolation instead of separation. So keep that in mind. Look for opportunities. Great commandment. Go into all the world and preach the nation to every creature. Learn to speak fish. Establish common interests. Create a bridge. Small talk. Um, makes for starting points. I know small talk seems like a waste of time when you're trying to get to the gospel. Don't rush to get them to the foot of the cross if they're not ready for it. Not every conversation that you have has to bring them there. 
Observe what's important to them. Pay attention. It's a lot of focus on what they're, the information they're giving you. That's what we're trying to, to bring forward. Look at common interests. Family, work, uh, shared experiences, tragedy, news stories. People, you walk into an office of somebody, take 30 seconds to observe what's on their walls and what's on their desk. They're going to have pictures of their family. They're going to have trophies of their kids or, or something of that nature. Look at that and now find common ground. Some people are naturally better at doing this than others. It takes practice. I'll use an example from when we were younger. My brother Mark and I were standing in line at the duty-free, when we used to have to exchange money at the duty-free all the time. We're standing in line, and I'm chatting with a guy in front of me, and we're just chatting away, small talk, you know, weather, whatever, sports, complaining about something. You know, in Canada, we complain about the weather all the time, so it's normally an easy conversation starter. And, and so we get out of line, and we've, you know, we finish doing what we've got to do. We're walking out, and Mark says to me, he goes, do you know that guy? I said, no. He said, well, why were you talking to him? Yeah, it's bored. Why not? You know, you have an opportunity to talk to somebody. Why not? Get yourself in the habit of speaking to strangers. It's just a friend you haven't met yet. It's okay. <laughs> My son puts me to shame. He'll kind of, we'll be sitting, walking through the mall. Hi, hi, how are you? Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, okay, buddy, enough. Like, come on, keep going. So, but, but there's a really warm, warm element to that. There's an element of being able to say, you know what? Sometimes I need to take a lesson from him. Sometimes I should be more engaging and have those conversations. And that's, take the opportunity to learn to speak fish. Using the right bait. If you go for salmon, you're going to use a certain bait. If you're going to go for a different type of fish, you're going to use a different type of, of bait. Same idea. Through your actions, you're going to be able to, to, to befriend them. You're going to be able to, to show them how you, how you are their friend through your actions. You're going to show them love unconditionally. You're not here yet to even necessarily speak the gospel yet. You may have just become their friend. Our next-door neighbor, the, the Sunnis beside us, our grass bumps right up to theirs. We cut our grass. Typically, if they haven't cut their grass yet, I'll just continue on, finish both lawns in the front, and away we go. Inevitably, the very next day, some of it's self-serving a little bit here, I'll, I'll confess that, they bring us a plate of amazing, amazing Mediterranean food that they've made fresh. Like, better than restaurant quality. So I really like Mediterranean food, so it's kind of a little bit self-serving here. But um, it's an idea of, of how you can, just, you can reach out. We, I've had the conversation. He was a lawyer back in Egypt, where he came from. And we've had the opportunity. I'm a paralegal, so we've had a lot of opportunity. So I've actually suggested he go back and get his paralegal license, and he can come and work with me. And it's ways that you can find a way to connect with some of these people that I haven't, haven't, had, I haven't had the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, my daughter Helena was over there bouncing on the trampoline and playing with their daughter and uh, proceeded to tell her that uh, if she didn't believe in Jesus Christ, she was going to hell. Um, so... They didn't play together for a while, but, you know, it's ways in which you can open up those conversation doors, right? Um, throughout, you know, using your words now to be able to actually find an opportunity to speak 
with what's important to them. And this is what I was sharing with a little bit earlier. Um, the idea of learning what's important to them in their, in their faith. They bring us food all the time, and we are very thankful for it. Um, and so I offered the one time, I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to go get some halal chicken, and I'm going to make a traditional Hungarian dish. I'm going to make some nice big pot of paprikash, and we're, you know, we're going to sit down for a meal, and we're, we're just really going to enjoy. And he goes, don't worry about the halal stuff. And I went, what? This is a Muslim telling me not to worry about halal meat? And he says, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He says, back home, we don't have halal meat. He says, halal meat's only here. And I'm like, are you kidding? He says, no, halal meat is only in North America. He says, as far as what it's taught in Egypt, if get food given to you by a Muslim, a Jew, or a Christian, and we've prayed to Allah before the meal and blessed the food, that's good enough for us. I would have never known. I just would have, I made the assumption that halal meat was important to him. It's not. But it may be to the other guy. You have to learn what's important to them. You have to learn, and that is the best way for you to be able to see, great, this is, this is the area that they hold the most true to. This is the area that's going to be hardest to overcome. You need to pay attention to those things. Um, you can learn more by listening over coffee to what they're talking about than studying a book. That's so why I said, these are great, and it's a good idea to get an overview, but it's not the be-all and end-all. You're not going to be able to win the argument, and that's not what this is about. Um, don't go too far too fast. Be patient until the fish bites. Um, give a person what they are ready for. Don't think you've got to get every single argument in in order to be able to get them hooked. All right? You just give them a piece of the time. Don't make them choke on the meat of the word. Don't move the hook too quickly. This is one that we regularly do. Um, don't condemn them unnecessarily. And the example that, of Jesus and the woman at the wall is fantastic. He says, you know, he, he's talking to her about her lifestyle. He doesn't condemn her. He says, you know, the man you're with today isn't your husband. In fact, you've had five. And, and he says, and thank you for speaking the truth. So he, he, he seasons it very gracefully, as we've been talking about. <clears throat> Preach against sin to save, to judge. And say that again. Preach against sin to save, not judge. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 um, and 3, probably some of the most outstanding um, aspects of being able to evangelize. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. So we're talking about our lives now. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. If we live a pure life and we're consistent in our walk in front of these people, they will see it. And here's the condemnation on the second half. If we're not doing that, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. We have an obligation to live our lives in a way that it is obvious to, the, to the, those that are lost around us. 
Stick with it, even if the fish are just nibbling. How many, how many fishermen have just sat there and felt a tug, felt a tug, but nothing ever, ever came up? If you stick with it long enough, eventually they bite, right? Stick to the main issue. Many times they'll just raise additional objections. Um, if they raise an objection on an idea, don't run away and go to the next idea. Finish up what you started. Um, so many times they'll throw out a red herring. They'll throw out something that you don't want to do. Here's a question. You, you come back to them. Or here's a way that we can gently kind of steer that conversation back. Before we move on to a different topic, I'd really like to answer your first question that you asked. It's an opportunity for you to make sure you complete that thought and actually answer the objection. Because what's going to happen is they're going to keep on throwing red herrings out. You're going to keep on going down those money trails. And at the end of it, you're not going to have answered any of them properly. Answer at least one properly so that they can at least have something to chew on. Uh, don't, don't jump ahead of yourself um, or the point that you're trying to make. Many times we will say, we'll start the argument here, and because they automatically gave an objection here, we just move on to the next you know, talking point that we have. We don't want that. We want to be actually be able to, to remain steadfast to where we're going. Lastly, set the hook and reel them in. Confront them directly. At this point, now, now I'm blowing through these seven steps real quick, but at this point I need you to realize that this is a very lengthy process to get to this point. You've already built, and you've spent many hours building a relationship with these people. Now is the time that you've earned their trust, you've been a consistent friend, you've been faithful to, to, that, to that relationship. Now is the time to ask direct questions. Now is the time to actually confront them with some hard, hard conversation without being judgmental. Understand as well, when you, when you look at discipleship, all the hours of those conversations you had leading up to this point, this is now just the beginning point of, of the relationship where you're going to have to dedicate even more time. You have to dedicate even more effort. You're going to have to take the time to study the scripture with them, to actually delve into the meat. This is where you're getting into the meat and you're actually pulling them in. All right, La the, the last portion of this. Having an artful method. This is Tactical Communications 101. There's a, name by the, a gentleman by the name of Gregory Kokel. I'll let him speak for himself. I, I commend you to his, his organization. It's called Stand to Reason. Outstanding. Outstanding apologist, and he'll, he deals a lot with tactical communication. Now, our need for, for using tactics, I think, relates to our role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And Stand to Reason is an organization that is built on the ambassador model. Uh, ambassadors have three essential skills. First, they have to know a few things, all right? They have to have a content base. They have to have a knowledge base as they represent their sovereign uh, to the people that the sovereign has sent them to talk to. Uh, secondly, they have to be able to use the knowledge well. Okay, we call this wisdom. But when they need more than the knowledge and they need more than the wisdom. They also need a character that commends the message and doesn't undermine the message. Stand the reason we, the way we characterize this is knowledge is an accurately informed mind. Wisdom is an artful method. And character is an attractive 
manner. And these skills play a role in every single effective encounter with other people for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, this second skill, this tactical wisdom, is going to be the focus of our course. Let's talk about the difference between tactics and strategy. Tactics are distinct from strategy in my understanding. If you think of the military metaphor, strategy is kind of the big, big picture. It, in, it involves the, the, the large-scale operation, so to speak. All right? And the way I use the concept of strategy with regards to Christianity is I think of the tremendous resources of knowledge that we have available to us as Christians to defend the Christian faith. We've got all of this stuff out there. Uh, we can be very competitive in the marketplace of ideas. In fact, when you consider the other options, I don't think there's any other point of view that comes close. We've got the goods. We've got the best uh, ideas. We are well positioned on the battlefield. Right. As, uh, Sorry, I, I'm looking at time, and we're just, we're, we'll skip over <clears throat> the remainder of the video because we'll capture most of it afterwards. Uh, if you learn to speak tactfully and, and with tactics, you're going to, to be able to present the truth clearly, cleverly, you're going to be able to actually choreograph or steer or guide um, the interactions. You're going to be able to stop an aggressive challenger, and you're going to be able to recognize um, someone's bad habits or bad thinking. Um, tactics are not a way to expose somebody and make fun of them. If you're, if you're quick-witted, um, it's, not a, it's not an opportunity to get a barb in and, and to really prove them that they're not that intelligent. It's the opportunity to actually do the otherwise and encourage them and, and help them to do it. The goal of our conversations is simply to put a pebble in their shoe. Everybody's had a stone in their shoe. <clears throat> it drives you nuts as you walk. That's what our goal is to be. Our goal is to put that pebble in their shoe so every time they take a step, they think, oh, man, and they, and they, they want to take it out. We want them to think about it that way. Some basics of debating. Uh, what is an argument? It is a claim that is based on reasons. That's the basis of an argument. Burden of proof. When somebody makes an argument or makes a claim, they have the burden of proof. They have to prove the reasons why they believe it. Don't take it the other way around. And don't say, just because somebody throws out a claim, homosexuality is natural. That's not, there's no, there's no basis for that. So the key question is, how did you come to that conclusion? And now all of a sudden you can start dissecting their argument in a simple way. This one's a quick, quick one. The Colombo tactic. There were, uh, yep. gee, you don't have a pencil, do you? Anybody remember Colombo? <laughs> Thanks. You know, my wife, she gives me one every morning and I just can't seem to hold on to it. Uh, oh, yes. Now, we know that you were in Mexico, but... Uh, Lieutenant, if there's any further... So, why, why was Colombo as effective as he was? He kept prodding. He was unassuming, very much. He, he did. He always drew them back in. He'd always say things like, I'm a little confused about this. You know, or, or I'm, I'm not really the brightest, uh, the brightest guy here. He was very self-deprecating in order to be able to make people just say, oh, you know, he's, you know. And he'd come in all tattered. He would intentionally forget his pen. Um, he'd set things down. And then his classic would be, he'd be walking out, just one more thing. Just one more question, right? 
He always had that one more question. He had a bad habit of, of, of asking questions, as, as, he used to, as he used to say it. Questions instead of statements. That's what we want to add. That's what we want to do. That's the basis of tactical communication. Questions, where, what does it do? Puts the burden of proof on them, not on you. All right? So the first question in the Colombo tactic tells you what the person believes. Second question is why they believe it. So the first one is, what do you mean by that? Now you can gather information when they answer that, because now you're defining some terms. Second question, how did you come to that conclusion? By what facts are you doing? And you can just play around with different versions of this. This one, again, forces the burden of proof back on them. Some examples. The Bible has been translated and retranslated. How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, Jesus taught, that reincar- taught reincarnation after traveling to India. R- what reasons do you have to think that's true? Um, every living creature came from a single-celled life form. What reasons do you have to believe that? Instead of sitting there and saying, no, it came from creation, and how can it be so dumb? Now you can say, hey, wait a minute. Prove to me why you're saying that. What, what facts are you basing that on? The burden of proof them to do it. They're the ones that made the claim. Okay? Science has proven the Bible wrong. How many times have we heard that one? How did you come to that conclusion? Again, forcing it back on them. Um, where of the professor's ploy? This is another, they, they like to shift the burden of proof back on you. How many people remember this movie? This is Philosophy 150. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of. There is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. Mr. Wheaton, is something wrong? I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis. All right. See what happened? Suddenly, it's right back on to the kid who didn't make the claim. Who made the claim? Professor Addison. He's the one that said God's dead. So let him defend it. Don't get sucked into it. Simply remind the person that you, that you have made no claim, therefore you have nothing to prove. Don't get sucked into it, because they're fighting from a position of authority, and you're not. It's never going to end well for you. Taking the roof off. This is the, the idea of taking a, a, an argument and taking it to its natural extreme consequence. Christ did this regularly. Matthew 12 The Pharisees accuse him of of casting out the devil by the devil. And he takes this this idea and takes it to its extreme end. And he says, well, how can I cast the devil out by the devil? A nation nation that is divided amongst itself falls. And he goes on to explain. He takes the roof off and throws that argument right out the window. The suicide tactic. Um, Suicide tactic is when statements that people make are contradictory. It is the law of non-contradiction. So, three steps to defeat it. Identify the basic premise of the claim. Determine if the claim contradicts itself. And ask a question that graciously uncovers the claim's contradictions. Some examples. My brother's an only child. Ask me about my vow of silence. This page is intentionally left blank. How many people have actually seen that written? It's not blank, is it? 
No, of course not. Law of non-contradiction. All right? Last, last uh, component here, sticks and stones tactic. This is where they actually try to take this uh, idea, and instead of being able to attack the argument, they attack the person. Uh, the solution to this is if you, you look at the, the three possibilities. It doesn't apply to me. If it does apply, it also applies to them. So therefore, their statement is, is not correct. When somebody tries to argue for, for moral relativism, you can prove them wrong by proving that they're arguing based on a moral, rel moral absolute, that they're right because you're being intolerant. It defeats itself. And then lastly, if it, does, it doesn't matter whether it applies to you or not. Some examples. You're so intolerant. You're just, a homopho you're just homophobic. Um, you're such a judgmental person. Why are you so narrow-minded? Why are you so intolerant? Right? Those are all examples of people attacking you instead of the argument. Make them put the argument back onto the argument, not onto you. In conclusion, and I, this is um, a lot of this, the, the tactical communication comes from this book, Tactics, by Gregory, Gregory Kokel. I highly commend it. Take the time. It's a fantastic, fantastic read, but it's also very, very effective in teaching you. He goes through it into a lot more detail um, than I could have ever done in a, in a very short form here. Remember, we're the ambassador of King of Kings. We are speak the truth in love, preach to all nations, have a ready answer, as 1 Peter 3.15, and be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. If you learn some of these tactics to be able to ask questions rather than make statements, you're going to gain a lot more. If you take the time to become their friend and, and have personal evangelism a part of your life, and I'm going to tell you, it's, it's not an easy way to go because so many times you have to bite your lip or your tongue because you want to jump in there because you know the answer. That, that's not what we want to do. We want to be able to simply ask a question and, and get a, a solid answer from them that you can actually now learn about what's important to them, how we can react to them. Are there any questions? I know we blew through this real quick. I'm sorry. But any questions or comments before we go? Thank you very much for your time.